Hi, Ann Pearson here. And before I begin today's episode, I'm excited to tell you about the Paralegal Bootcamp's new three-step roadmap to manage cases like a rock star paralegal. If you're fairly new to litigation, this quick start guide will help you figure out three things that you can be doing to help you better anticipate what the attorney needs before they have to ask for it. It'll help reduce some of those last minute scrambles, especially if you're working for an attorney who's a procrastinator or someone who doesn't always share all of the important case information with you. I put this three-step roadmap into a downloadable PDF for you, and it's completely free. You can get yours on our website at paralegal-bootcamp.com forward slash three steps. Hi there, you're listening to the Paralegals on Fire podcast show where you'll be getting tips and actionable strategies that you can use right now to fast track your paralegal career. I'm your host, Ann Pearson, former paralegal and paralegal manager who left big law in the concrete jungle to start my own company, the Paralegal Bootcamp, where we give online courses that help paralegals make more money, increase their job security, and cut out the learning curve. All right, let's jump right into today's episode. Well, hello. In today's show, I'm excited to have Casey Flaherty as my guest. While Casey is my first lawyer guest on the show, I'd call him more of a lawyer innovator because for years, he's been trying to bring innovation into an industry that's not really known for being ahead of its times. Casey started his career as a litigator at a big law firm and then went in-house to Kia Motors. And it was that work that led him to develop the Legal Technology Assessment Tool. The LTA helps legal professionals identify and address gaps in their basic office technologies, gaps that most people don't even know they have until they take the assessment. Recently, he left Baker McKenzie's project management team to be a co-founder of LexFusion, where they are accelerating the legal industry's adoption of technology and innovation. So, Casey, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Casey, I don't know if you know this, but we are both alumni of Holland and Knight. Uh, I worked out of the Atlanta office until around 2004. I think you worked for them in California a little later than that. Yeah, I was in the Los Angeles office uh, 2006 to 2010 or 11. Okay. So, you leave Holland and Knight and you go in-house at Kia Motors, and now you've got both sides of the fence that you're seeing. What was it that you experienced that led you to develop this legal technology assessment tool? Well, while I was at Holland and Knight, which I loved, I observed quite a bit of inefficiency. It had nothing to do with the lawyer's expertise at the law. They were true experts, and that expertise was extremely valuable to corporations like Kia. And I never want to lose sight of that or dismiss that. So it wasn't the, the lawyers themselves. It was the infrastructure around them, the way their expertise was or was not leveraged through process and technology. And so I became very focused on service delivery, not because it's more important than expertise, but because I considered the, the expertise to already be there. It is the threshold consideration. But once you have the expertise, then you start asking other questions like how is it 
leverage through process and tech. And so I became very focused on service delivery based on my own experience at a law firm. And so when I was in-house, I started sitting with my firms trying to understand how they were delivering legal services to us. And I would actually go on site in the, the lean world. So I'm a lean Six Sigma black belt. It's called going to Gemba, going to the place it is, going to the place where it's happening. So you can observe what's occurring. And I found at every firm I visited, the same thing that I'd seen as an associate at, at Holland and Knight, amazing lawyers stuck in not particularly good processes and not, not supported the right way from a tech and infrastructure perspective. And I would have these discussions with the partners who were working for Kia and therefore for me in that my capacity as in-house counsel. And they would, they would often kind of blame IT for not giving them the tools they needed. And, and I would push back on that. Now, certainly every place can, can upgrade their tooling. That's what happens with, with information technology. It moves very quickly. So even if you're completely caught up today in six months, you're six months behind. So I would never discourage them from investing more in technology. But I would point out that they weren't even using the tech they already had. And they would ask for examples. And I would say, for example, Microsoft Word. And, and there we would part ways because they would freely admit that they weren't using advanced technologies like AI. They thought I was a bit daft in suggesting that their associates and paralegals uh, and anyone who was billing to my time wasn't good with Word or Excel or PDF because they use those tools every day. And I, I tried to explain that just because they use them didn't mean that they use them well. And we'd be at a bit of an, an impasse. And so I actually came up with a workflow based on tasks we were paying people to do that were that showed up on our bills. I, I came up with a, a workflow of, of dummy documents and a bunch of interconnected tasks. And I could complete these interconnected tasks in about 20 minutes using the most common software in the world. In this case, uh, Word, Excel, and Adobe Acrobat. The average AMLAW 100 associate and paralegal took over an hour and a half. And in fact, it's closer to two and a half hours, how long they took to do the same exact tasks because they were unaware of very basic functionality in the tools they used every single day. And this was not their fault. The tools are not intuitive. In my other life, I actually do work on trying to create more intuitive tools. But for now, and for decades and decades, this is what we've been using. And it's not intuitive. And there's no reason people should automatically know how to use it. And they don't. So they don't. To take one example, lawyers love cross-references. They litter contracts to an unbelievable extent. <laughs> and by the way, even the litigators write contracts. They just call them settlement agreements. And they use the same kind of cross-references. For 30 years, Word has had an automated cross-reference function. Less than 1% of legal professionals know how to use this function. And by the way, those that do don't end up using it because other people don't know how to use it. And therefore, the document doesn't get set up in a way that makes it useful. Uh, and so there are network effects to this where we need to raise the baseline industry-wide to take more advantage of the, the tools we already have. So I took that workflow and I actually built an automated assessment tool where it would run people through the workflow. They would 
download the document, again, dummy documents, we don't need to worry about confidentiality. They'd be asked to do the task and, and upload it so that I could collect more and more data showing exactly what I already knew to be true. And so that was the origin of the LTA. But it's, it's one thing to be able to identify gaps in people's knowledge. It's another thing to fill those gaps. And actually, the competency-based approach lends itself extremely well to training. Because what you can do is put people in an environment where you give them a task. And if they know how to do it, they just do it and move on to the next task. But if they don't know how to do it, A, you can grade it, again, in an automated fashion and say, hey, you got that wrong. Here, watch this video and now try again. And so it's immediate feedback and experiential learning without boring people by teaching them things they already know. And so if they already know everything, they fly through it. And if they know nothing, it takes them a while and they go at whatever pace is appropriate both to their knowledge level and, and how quick and how quickly they pick these up. And by the end of you know going through a module on contracts or a module on briefs or a module on memos or a module on Excel or PowerPoint, they've either validated that they have the knowledge required or they've acquired that knowledge. And either way, we get professionals who are better able to use the core tools of their trade. That is the origin story of the, of the legal tech assessment. It's in use at now about 100 law schools, dozens of firms, dozens of corporations, dozens of paralegal programs. And yet it's nowhere near the penetration levels that I, I think it should be. I think it should be ubiquitous because this is the best way to learn much better than simply watching videos, which you tune out and forget. You do that competency-based experiential component is huge to retention. Um, and by the way, it's not because people retain absolutely everything. If someone learns it, say their first year of in paralegal school or their first year of law school, and but for whatever reason doesn't use cross-references for the next three years, they might not remember exactly where the button is and Word may even have moved the button by then. But they will remember it exists and they'll be able to go to Google and look it up. And it might take them a minute and a half instead of 30 seconds, but it will save them hours and also hundred, in many instances, hundreds of opportunities for human error error that the machine will not make. So this is about quality of work. It's also about quality of life uh, because the work that the machine does best is the work that is the most drudgerous. The reason we make those mistakes is because we get bored and we get bored because it is boring. I'm sorry. I've been, I know I've been monologuing like a blonde villain. I'm sure you have other, other questions. No, no, I, lo- I like that. Because so full disclosure, I've used the LTA and I am going to put a link to it in the show notes. And I thought I was a pretty good person when it came to Microsoft Word and it turned out I wasn't. (laughs) But the thing I really liked about it is I'm very good at Microsoft Excel. I was kind of forced to get very good at it about 15 years ago or so. But the thing I liked about it is then I didn't have to spend as much time in Microsoft Excel. And that's where I really thought, wow, this should be in every law firm in the United States because paralegals who know how to use Microsoft Excel, for example, why should they have to sit through eight hours of training when they've got it and they can move on? And I loved that. I'm curious though, 
Do you think that maybe the schools have some responsibility to better prepare paralegals and lawyers to have the skills that they actually need? Because, for example, I remember in my paralegal certificate program, there was a semester on law office technology, and it was very general, just brushed the surface of things like Westlaw and Lexis, and they don't really tell you how much you should know in what you're going to be using things like the table of authorities and Microsoft Word and Adobe and, you know, all of those things. And I like that it's in a lot of the law schools, but I don't see it in as many paralegal schools. Well, and even in the law schools, it tends to be used in specialty classes, electives where people want to learn about technology as opposed to being integrated into the core curriculum. And so I believe that schools, frankly, all the way down to grammar schools, but schools in general should integrate competency-based technology training into the core curriculum. In particular, it's a much better way of teaching technical skills than classroom instruction. Classroom instruction is great. Lecture format, the Socratic method for understanding broad concepts and ideas, but for acquiring narrow technical skills, competency-based training is far superior. And so it should be modules that are done outside of the classroom for any school that is preparing people for an office environment. We have legal-specific training, but we've actually also opened up more general training because there are lots of other professions that, that require it. So I think it should be part of core curriculums in schools. And then I think that it should be used for screening by corporations and and law firms, Uh, not necessarily to decide who to hire, but once they've hired them to decide what kind of training they need. So if they got the training they needed, fantastic. They're going to fly through all the assessments. And if they don't, well, then you know exactly what they need to learn to be where they need to be. I can tell you that at Baker McKenzie, where I was permitted to do so, because it's different in different jurisdictions, and I've I'm not giving anyone legal advice about what's appropriate in their jurisdiction. Where it was possible, I built the the legal out the legal project management team. Excel is extremely important for project managers. And every single resume that came in said that people had Excel skills. And then we would run them through an assessment. And a lot of those resumes turned out to be wrong. And by the way, not lying, uh, wrong. And the reason is that people don't know what they don't know. How, how does someone who doesn't know a lot about Excel realize that they don't know that much about Excel? Because they might know a little and think that that's all that Excel does. And so a lot of people consider themselves to be where they need to be with Word, Excel, et cetera, because they have no idea what else that the software can do. And so by creating a standard, that comes with assessment and, of course, also training, we can actually identify gaps that people aren't able to identify themselves. So it is an institutional responsibility, both schools and employers. So let's say a paralegal or an associate, like in your example, they can now get this Word project done or this Excel project done in 20 or 30 minutes instead of two hours. If they work at big law, they now have to worry about less billable hours. Like, how would you 
handle that? Or what would you say to that? Well, first of all, right now, no one has to worry about fewer billable hours. Firms are turning work down because it's such a crazy period. But even, even in periods that aren't this crazy, if you look at collected realization rates, you understand that law firms write off an enormous amount of time before they send bills to clients. And the partners at the firms consider this to be good client service. They look at a bill and they have a gut reaction about whether or not it's commensurate with the value delivered, the client's expectations. And a huge part of that is efficiency of the people supporting the matter, the paralegals, the associates. Should it have taken this long to do X, Y, or Z? Did someone spend too long? And if the answer is yes, they cut that time. And so they are cutting massive amounts of time. Uh, we're talking on, on the order of about uh, $11 billion last year uh, in the MLAW 100 alone. So that accrues to both the top and bottom line in a very serious way and also affects the perception of the individual, how much of their time gets, gets cut. So I, I, I don't consider that to be a real issue. And by the way, if anyone objects to being more efficient because they will make less money, they're violating any number of ethical rules. And, and not just uh, 1.1 comment eight on competence, but also 1.5 on fees, five point, and as well as if it, they're making this decision at the firm level, 5.1 and 5.3 on delegation to lawyers and to non-lawyers, which I'm not a big fan of the non-lawyer term, but it is the technical term in the rules. I prefer allied professionals. Thank you for that. But, <laughs> I but, agree. But, 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 if I'm, but if I'm discussing it in the context of the rules, I'm, I use the terminology of the rules. Sorry to be that guy, but I am very much that guy. Well, so since we're talking about legal innovation today, along with the assessment and all that, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, uh, a common complaint that I hear from paralegals working with attorneys who still like to do their work the old-fashioned way, you know, in paper. They avoid technology at all costs. And I'm not just talking about small firms here. I'm literally in 2021, I still hear paralegals tell me that there are attorneys out there who receive a PST file with 5,000 or 10,000 emails in it, and they tell the paralegal to print them out so the attorney can review it and print it, flag it, et cetera. What advice do you have, if any, for paralegals who are dealing with this technology adverse attorney? You know, um, obviously they could quote that rule, right? Um, but I don't know that that would do so well for their job. That's, that's a hard one because it's, it, it's very hard to change the behavior of someone over whom you have no authority. And some, and some, and sometimes you, you can't. And I, I know this sounds harsh, but this is the hottest job market on record in our space. And the, the great resignation has definitely hit law. If, people are causing themselves and everyone around them unnecessary pain, exit the painful situation. If you try and reason with someone and they will not listen to reason, I don't have great advice beyond that. That said, I have done a lot of work uh, getting attorneys to adopt technology tools and people who are initially hesitant. And the way I've done it is 
is shown it what's in it for them, as opposed to telling them how it would make my life easier. Uh, I have shown them how it will make their life easier. Sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't, but it, it seems to be the best bet. I, again, I wish, I wish I had some kind of silver bullet. The, the partner who's in charge wants to do things a certain way and that way is stupid. There's, there's only so much you can do. I have, I have dealt with large number of attorneys who are extremely successful, who do many things that are counterproductive for themselves and their firms and their clients. And yet their expertise, they are truly expert in their area and ultimately deliver considerable value. And so all of those uh, inefficiencies and other issues get, get overlooked. And I actually, I understand that. Again, I never dismiss the, the actual value being delivered. And I, and I never dismiss expertise being that, that threshold consideration. That said, clients are looking at a lot more than that. A lot of the time, there have been massive movements of work uh, in-house and to new law, law companies precisely because clients don't feel like they are getting value from their firms in part for lack of efficiency. If you look at the most recent uh, Walters Kluwer report, 90% of, of large clients reduced the number of provider relationships they had in 2020. That is, they're working with fewer firms. The number one criteria for evaluating their firms was how those firms used technology. And their number, their number one reason for switching firms was lack of efficiency and productivity. So this is a multi-billion dollar question. And there are many lawyers who will get away with it until they retire. There's a lot of other lawyers who are making a lot less money than they could have with a different approach. Right. I totally agree. And I agree about the, you know, get up and go somewhere else because now's the time if if, I, there, if there's an issue for sure. I was, I, I was just on the phone with a friend yesterday who got a brand new job. And she said that, that I'm the one who pushed her over the edge, not in a bad way. <laughs> uh, she was just, she was describing a, a situation where she had all these things that she was being asked to do and she wanted to do them, but she was not given the appropriate resources. And my response was, well, if you're not getting the resources, then these things are not going to get done. And that, that actually clicked for her. And she's like, oh, I, I should go, I should go somewhere else where I get, I get the, I get sufficient resources. And she did. And she's much happier and I'm much, and I'm very happy for her. So I, I know that sounds like harsh advice and by, and I know not everyone can take it, but I don't, I don't have any magic words that will charm, you know, anyone who in a position of authority and does not want to change. Right. Well, and then a lot of them have left just to start their own companies, um, work in a virtual paralegal company or remote positions. And so I'm wondering along those lines. So I think I heard this past week, unemployment was at a 0.9% for associates and under 3% for all other law firm employees. So lower, way lower than even the national average. And do you think based on that shortage of people even wanting to work, whether it's at a certain law firm because of 
the lawyer's reputation or just not wanting to work at a law firm in general. Do you think that maybe that's going to motivate the legal industry to look more closely at technology and what they can automate and incorporate and innovate? Yes. So I think not having people causes organizations to figure out how to do more with the people they have. So how do we, how do we get more productivity? How do we get more yield out of the people we have? And there's, there's only, you can only ask them to work so many more hours before the constraints of both well-being and space-time uh, impinge. And therefore, it's got to be finding force multipliers, which is, which is process and technology. So that's one, one piece of it. They're going to have no choice or they're going to they're going to have to let work pass, which some of them are. But that that can have serious consequences for long term client relationships um, because you're sent your your client who wants to work with you. You're sending them to someone else who now becomes uh, their trusted advisor. So that hurts a lot. The other piece of it in speaking to people who do law firm recruitment for both associates and paralegals is that. The money is pretty similar most places and a lot of places are looking. And so the way to sell yourself is lifestyle differentiation. And part of that is culture. Is this a nice place to work? But a part of culture is the culture around the use of technology and, and innovation. You can look it up if you Google law, most boring job in world, you will find a survey that cites law as the most boring job in the world. There's a lot of drudgery inherent in what we do. Much of that drudgery can be automated away. In fact, much of it has been automated away, but the automation only kicks in if we have the right tools and we're using them the right way. So I have one final question for you, which jumps kind of into your project management. I know you were the director of legal project management at Baker McKenzie and you're a Lean Six Sigma, I think you said? Yes, Lean Six Sigma. So I know many of the big firms are incorporating some sort of legal project management, but what, how do you think smaller firms can also benefit from that? Like say, a, and how would a paralegal, maybe at a small firm, because they have more autonomy and they have you know closer contacts with the partners, how would a paralegal get that going in their firm if their firm is not incorporating any project management? So all projects are managed. The only question is whether they're managed well. And legal project management is just applying the discipline of project management to to legal work. There, there is no great mystery to it. And so it's, it's, it's about acquiring the discipline and then acquiring the tools and applying both to legal work. And some of the best uh, legal project managers that I hired had started as paralegals. And paralegals do an enormous amount of project management. It's simply a, a question of whether, whether or not they're good at it and whether or not the firm allows them to be good at it. The most successful project managers are the ones that get listened to. That is, they have the they have the ear of who's ever leading the matter, leading the project. That person 
lets them do what needs to be done from an organizational perspective. And part of that is having their back when they have to ask other people to do things. And so a paralegal or a legal project manager talking to a senior associate is in a very different position if that senior associate knows that in this instance, the LPM or paralegal is speaking on behalf of the partner, that the partner has empowered them and entrusted them. And that if the senior associate or mid-level or junior doesn't get with the program, that's going to be a problem between them and the partner. And so it's that empowerment piece that is so important, again, along with having the actual discipline, skills, and, and tooling. You can, you can start without any of the tooling. People can start in Excel and Outlook and Teams and Planner and lots of things that are pretty widely available. Uh, they, don't, they don't have to have specific project management tools to do project management. That was the next question I was going to ask because I have a project management one-hour webinar and it's really just taking some of the basic project management principles and showing paralegals how they can incorporate those into their everyday projects. Because so years ago, I took the CAPM, the prep course, and then just never sat for the exam. And it was hard. The course was really hard. And I came from it with a background in construction litigation. And so you know, I wonder, it, would it be worth it for paralegals to take a project management, like the full PMI course, or is that too much? So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak out of both sides of my mouth. Okay. I don't think they need to go the full way in order to acquire the necessary project management skills. That said, the Credentials do matter in our space and people pay attention to them. The fact that I'm a lean six black belt has helped me gain credibility with a lot of different audiences. Frankly, I think I could have learned much of what I needed different ways. I didn't have to go through the formal course in order to acquire the, the knowledge and skills. And yet the credential did help. So. Do they need to do it to get the knowledge and skills? No. Could it long-term help them? Yes. It could, for example, help them get a legal project manager role at a firm, which are becoming more prevalent. And there's more of those roles than there are trained legal project managers. And so if you're a paralegal with a PMI certificate or PRINCE2 or go down the list, that opens up another professional avenue for you, especially if the the organization and management is what you like to do. Different people have, enjoy different areas of the job. And for those who enjoy the organizational piece of it, they should consider getting certified and going, going the LPM route. It will help them get paralegal jobs at places that don't have project managers, or it will help them get a project manager job at places that did. I like it's, that advice. Yeah. Was that, I mean, why, again, I know it's the classic lawyer. It depends, but a lot of things often depend. It depends on whether the people are just interested in gaining the knowledge and skills, or if 
they want to improve their resume and increase their option optionality from an employment perspective. Yeah, I think back to my paralegal manager days, and I would definitely probably look more to somebody who had at least the skill of project management, if not the credentials, because it's a it's a good skill to have in the legal industry. Yeah, and and what the credential says, like so many credentials, is I have the discipline to do what needs to be done to get this piece of paper. And so I'm not just claiming to know things like I, I have put in the time and the work because, you know, anyone can put project management among their skills the same way anyone can say they're skilled at Excel. All right. So I like to give actionable strategies at the end of each show. And um, I think the first one is for people to take the legal technology assessment. I'll put the link in the show notes and definitely do that before you go and take a Lean Six Sigma course on project management, because you're going to really want to know how to use Microsoft Excel, right? To be a project manager. (laughs) And it it doesn't have to be Lean Six Sigma. It can be PMI. It can be, there's there's a lot of kind of reputable project management pathways. It can be agile. There's a lot of options in terms of what what you can do. And frankly, to be completely clear, lean is a bit more about process improvement than it is about project management, which is is a distinction with a difference, but not one that a lot of people make. Right. That would be more of the legal project management versus project management, because isn't legal project management more about changing those processes? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, so that's a broader discussion. Different firms use LPM different ways. Hmm. Uh, the three versions of it, uh, what we did at Baker was we, we had actual LPMs staffed on very large client matters. They were in true project management roles. Now we had some other people who would work on process improvement, but primarily most, most of the hours or billable hours on matters, uh, helping run run those matters, keeping them organized. There are other places where their LPM teams are focused on process improvement, and they don't they don't necessarily build the clients. They're not necessarily staffed on matters. Uh, they tend to be aligned with the the knowledge innovate and innovation teams to improve processes. That's fantastic as well. And then the the third version of it is more like an account manager looking across a particular portfolio uh, for a client and making sure that things are handled according to the client specifications, that they get the reporting that they need. They know what's on track and what's not on track. Again, perfectly valid role, but very different than the other two I described. And so depending on which role you're in, different, different training is probably more appropriate. That said, most people don't make those distinctions. And so if you come in with PMI or a Lean Six Sigma Black Belt or some recognized Agile certifications or what have you, they'll probably be treated about the same from a hiring standpoint. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up. Well, Casey, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule today to chat with me. All this is going to be so helpful to the listeners. I can't wait to get this episode out to them. Thank you so much for having me. And I really appreciate the time and the questions and and hope that I was of use to the audience. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. All right, that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, hit the subscribe button in whatever platform you're listening. And please take a quick minute and leave a review of the podcast and share this episode with just one colleague or friend who you think would benefit from what we discussed today. Share the knowledge and the entire paralegal profession elevates. See you next week. Bye for now.